Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. Welcome to Hashing It Out, a podcast where we talk to the tech innovators behind blockchain infrastructure and decentralized networks. We dive into the weeds to get at why and how people build this technology and the problems they face along the way. Come listen and learn from the best in the business so you can join their ranks. Welcome back, everybody. Episode 46 of Hashing It Out. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Corey Petty, and my trusty co-host today, who has a special reveal. Um, why don't you say hello to everybody and tell them, tell them who you are. Hello, everybody. As you know, I've been operating on this podcast for almost a year now. Actually, it's been exactly a year almost, I think. And uh, I've been operating on the pseudonym uh, Colin Couchet. Well, I, I just want to let you know that in reality, I am creator of Bitcoin, Craig Wright. So that's a good that's a good thing to have on the show. Um, we have the official Craig Wright um, talking with us us now. And, yeah, I have to go to the court and get my actual name changed back because right now it's still Colin Couchet and it's just going to mess things up. But yeah, no, I mean like yeah, yeah, it was Craig Wright. Yeah. Speaking of secrecy and operating under pseudonyms, uh, we're going to talk a lot about privacy today. Um, particularly the RIN project. So we have uh, Long Long with us to discuss uh, everything about the RIN project. So why don't you give us a quick introduction as to kind of how you got into the space and what the RIN project is and what you're trying to do. Yeah, um, sure. So I got into the space uh, with a longtime friend and a colleague of mine, Taiyang Zhang, who's uh, the CEO. And um, I'd been kind of working in distributed systems for a while. Um, I did a lot of research with them uh, while I was at university. Um, and I've, I guess, done a lot of projects that uh, require working with these types of systems, but never in a trustless manner. Uh, and in 2017, when uh, Ty came to me with this idea to sort of implement a decentralized dark pool, uh, so I think it was late 2017, uh, I jumped on that opportunity. It was just perfect to, to take my, my passion for distributed systems and translate it into an industry that looked like it was really uh, booming uh, and has continued to do so since then. So what specifically is the REN project? What, is, what does it do? Like what's the, uh, what's the goal and what, how does it differentiate itself from, from other things like it? The goal with the REN project is to take liquidity from all sorts of different blockchains, whether they are compatible with each other or not, uh, and to make them completely interoperable uh, and to do it in such a way that you can keep everything secret if you, if you want to. Uh, and to do it in such a way that it's completely seamless for the user. Um, and I th what really differentiates us from, from other projects um, is, A, there's a goal for decentralization, uh, trustlessness, permissionless, all that good stuff, um, which a couple of the interoperability solutions don't really focus on. Uh, and the other focus for us is to make sure that even if the blockchains that you want to connect didn't intend to be connected together, uh, you can still do it. So there are some projects uh, like Polkadot or Cosmos, which which tackle interoperability by saying, let's create a, a uniform protocol that everyone will will uh, implement, and then we can all talk to each other. 
But of course, the existing blockchains don't do that yet. Things like Bitcoin, which is really where all the liquidity is at the moment. Um, if you want to connect that to other chains, you have to take a completely different approach. And, and that's what we're trying to do. So I'm pretty sure the rest of this conversation is us trying to figure out how the hell you're going to do that. That's a, that's a lot of things to try and to try and accomplish. And there's a lot of minds trying to do it. I'm kind of curious as to like how, what, what approach Ren takes to doing it and why they can, why they think they can do it so, so well. And so in, in such a manner that's so user-friendly. Yeah. I mean, it's, it kind of seems like privacy and interoperability are these two somewhat orthogonal pieces of the puzzle. But um, when you take the approach that we're trying to take, which we, we really believe is one of the only sane approaches to take, privacy and interoperability kind of become the same problem. And if you can solve that, you solve everything, like you solve both of them kind of in one go. Why is uh, that? There you go. They're, they're typically I mean, viewed as two very separate problems. What, why is privacy and interoperability the same problem? So I don't quite I mean, understand how you make that connection yet. Firstly, it depends on what kind of privacy you're talking about. So if you're talking about like individual privacy, where you say, I want to, I want to transact money to you and I don't want anyone to know the amounts, but I want to be able to attest to that on the blockchain, then they're not really the same problem. But if all three of us want to engage in some collective computation, such as an exchange, and we want to do that without any of us knowing anything about what the other person is doing then suddenly that does become the same problem. And, and the reason for that is because it, it falls into this category of, of privacy called secure multi-party uh, computation, which is a fancy way of just saying, let's get a bunch of people together. They all have input to a program and they want to execute that program on that input, but they don't want anyone to find out what that input was. Uh, and probably they don't want anyone to find out what the output is either. So I guess my question is like, I, I hear that, but I don't see how that's interoperability. That's me. It's just another level of privacy. Like if I wanted to make say a token transfer uh, between one smart contract on one chain to another smart contract in a completely different chain, is, is that an, is that also a privacy problem? Or I mean, like, I don't understand how you made that. I've still not seen that kind of connection, if that makes sense. Yeah. So um, it's, it's really subtle. Uh, and it comes from the fact that when you have that ability, not only can you input data into such such a system, but you can also generate data in that system, data that no one ever knows. So for example, you could generate a random number that no one ever knew what that number was, but you can guarantee that it's random. But more specific, you can generate a private key that no one has ever seen before, that no one has access to, and you can control that private key using this network of thousands of machines. And because no one knows this private private key no one can spend that money unless the thousands of machines collectively work together to, to to agree on what they're going to do with that key and suddenly when you have this single private key which to any blockchain just looks like one normal user but in reality that one normal user is actually thousands of machines uh reaching consensus about what they want to do now you have this special trusted user that isn't actually trusted and it's not centralized and it's not permissioned that can take tokens from one chain, accept them, mint a copy of them on the other chain, and then, hey, presto, you've, you've got it. And because this is done in an environment which is inherently secret, that process can also be done in such a way that the amounts aren't necessarily revealed, uh, assuming that the origin blockchain doesn't have the amounts revealed by default. So you could transition uh, Zcash to Ethereum and, and not reveal the amount of, of Zcash that you uh, transferred. 
That's assuming that those assets are inside. So I think what you're referring to on, at least in your documentation, is the Ren VM. This is the thing that people are interacting with that obfuscates all of these things, right? So if, if that is the case, in order to do that transaction, there needs to be available capital. There needs to be something, like if you're going to transfer Ethereum or Zcash to Ethereum, then there needs to be a transaction elicited from Zcash and then a transaction that enters into Ethereum. So that means capital lockup at some point has to go from Ethereum into the opposite direction, basically. It's just you're basically, yes. what I'm yes. saying so is like you're, you're obfuscating you're that link between the two things. That's right? Yeah, that's right. You're, you're taking the Zcash, you're, you're locking it up by sending it to RenVM and RenVM takes um, control of those funds. And then it mints a copy of Zcash onto Ethereum one-to-one. Uh, and then when you burn the copy on Ethereum, it will react to that burn by releasing that Zcash back. Uh, and you can build these sort of standards, which kind of becomes Ren as a whole, which allow you to do this in such a way that the user doesn't even realize it's what they're doing. So they say, I want to yeah, I want to interact with a DEX, let's say Uniswap, super popular. Um, and I want to I want to send Bitcoin to that in exchange for Zcash. They will send Bitcoin just like a normal Bitcoin transaction to a normal wallet. And at the same time, they'll specify the Zcash address that they want to receive what they're buying to. Uh, and then they'll just wait. And the Zcash will appear uh, in that, that wallet that they've specified. They don't have to worry about wrapping or unwrapping. They don't see what's happening behind the scenes. And they don't even have to interact necessarily with the, the gas token on, on Ethereum or whatever other blockchain you happen to Okay, so let me see if I get this right in a recap way. And then I have some questions because we have talked about this subject a couple times before, um, like with the Interledger folks and such. Um, so what I, what I want to make sure I understand is that let's say you have a smart contract on Ethereum, which represents a Zcash token. Right, it represents a piece of Zcash. Does that make sense? Is that correct? Yep. So you'd be interacting with a token, an ERC, for instance, that represents an a, a asset on another chain. And so what the Ren project does is it it, it uh, we haven't gotten into the trust aspect of this yet, but I'm sure we'll cover that at some point. But let's just treat it as a single like intermediary, an exchange booth, like at a uh, currency exchange at, at like the airport. You know, I give you a dollar. You know, it'll take that physical dollar and then put it in its in its coffers and then give you another dollar back or put it in your debit card or whatever. Um, basically, what you're doing is is you're you're letting say uh, a transaction go to a particular wallet. I would assume at like on Bitcoin, and then that would produce a token in the Ethereum blockchain, which is equal in value and pegged to one Bitcoin. And then when somebody wants to redeem that for Bitcoin on the Bitcoin chain that is then pulled out of the Bitcoin uh, address or chain or whatever, um, and then put into back into whatever circulation that they're assigned to have. So if like, uh, let's just say my address uh, did beef says, I want to relinquish, I want to sell back my Ethereum token that I've been using to trade on the Ethereum network uh, it, that represents a Bitcoin asset. I want to sell that back and just redeem it for straight Bitcoin. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. Okay, so then I guess my next question is, um, what technique are you using for the transfer? Now, on the show, we've kind of discussed things like uh, HTLCs, hash time lock contracts, um, and atomic swaps. Um, and there are some uh, interesting complications surrounding um, all these kind of techniques. Uh, we've also talked about possibility of multi-party uh, threshold signatures to release the actual funds. 
what uh, what kind of tools are in your toolbox and how do you compose them to actually enable a trustless transfer set? I don't have to worry about whether or not that Bitcoin address is going to get corrupted on the Bitcoin chain and then uh, screw over the Ethereum chain. Likewise, how do I know that, let's just say Ethereum itself decides it's going to fork where it happens to my tokens in that 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 situation. So suddenly we have like another situation like ETH and ETC split. So how do I know? So what does your security look like? What is how's all this built together? Holy crap! I just asked a huge question. I'm sorry. That's like 30 questions in one. Yeah, but yeah, just give me give me one. give me the architecture because like this just shows you where my curiosity is. We'll set that as a framework for how we're discussing this. Code. Man, let's do this. Okay, so. Um... It doesn't use hash time lock contracts. I'll put that to bed. Uh, we used to use atomic swaps um, to do settlement before we arrived where we've arrived now in terms of the technological capability that we have. We no longer use atomic swaps for this. So the problem with atomic swaps is that they, they take a long time. Um, but in terms of actually as a settlement option, they have this issue where it's interactive. So both parties have to be online through the whole process. They have to sort of like do some back and forth. Uh, and if And if one of them cancels that process at any point the whole thing collapses so you if you build an exchange around this there's this risk that the other person is just going to pull out of the settlement when settlement comes and and the exposure that you thought you had you no longer actually have and so there's this huge counterparty risk um the other issue with this is that you kind of need specialized software um that you have to convince the user to install and you have to get them to use uh and that's that's really hard to do uh and then what happens when you have users that typically interact with multiple different types of exchanges. Is there going to be a standard for this? Do they need you know, four different wallets for four different exchanges that are all atomic swap enabled? Um, but the other real problem is that you're not actually, because you're not creating a tokenized representation on the other chain, there's a, a huge limit to what atomic swaps can actually do. And, and as their name implies, they're only good for swapping. So for example, if you wanted to take Bitcoin and you wanted to lock it up in a MakerDAO, uh, contract and use it to mint die. You couldn't do that with an atomic swap because there has to be a, a, a single party on the other side that's taking custody of those funds. Um, so the approach that we take is called secure multi-party computation. Um, and I guess what that means is that you have this collective of, of parties, multiple of them, surprise, uh, and they work together to do a computation. And there's a couple uh, constraints on that, which is that unless unless there's a certain per uh, percentage of these uh, parties that are corrupted and colluding and working together, you can guarantee that the data in that computation stays secret, but you can also guarantee that the computation is correct. Uh, and so those are two key, key components. And, and third, which is often ignored, is that you're guaranteed it's going to happen. So that as long as less than, let's say, one third of the parties, which is a typical sort of you know, Byzantine threshold, as long as less than one third of them are colluding maliciously, you're guaranteed that the computation is going to happen. You're guaranteed it's going to happen correctly. And you're guaranteed that any data involved that you want to keep secret will be kept secret. And this allows you to take a private key and distribute it to you know, thousands of machines. And it can only be used when there's consensus from the network. So in the case of a uh, split chain on Ethereum, the nodes would have to collectively decide and they would do this rather naturally uh, whether or not they wanted to support you know eth or, or etc because obviously they can't support both um, but if you had you know only half of them going one way and only half of them going the other way there is this inherent risk that you won't actually have enough 
to stay lively. But as long as you don't have uh, one third parties being malicious, it's impossible to get uh, both chains uh, suddenly miraculously having two representations of Bitcoin on, on two different chains. Uh, but there's only obviously one version of that Bitcoin in reality on the Bitcoin blockchain. And so this inherent consensus requirement and resistance against Byzantine actors uh, in multi-party computations is kind of what brings it all together and makes sure that the whole system is decentralized and trustless and introduces this ability for Ren to achieve uh, consensus about difficult decisions that it might have to make. For example, what tokens are we willing to support uh, to what blockchains? And really a fork is a question, is that question. It's what blockchain are we supporting here? Are we going to, because this technique is uh, usable for any blockchain to any other blockchain, there has to be a limit to what the documents actually agree to, to do this for. And so obviously they're going to start off with, with Bitcoin and Zcash uh, and Tether, bringing them to the Ethereum blockchain. And we've got some other ones lined up uh, later. But uh, once governance of the nodes take over, they have to make those decisions. Uh, and in the case of a fork, it is really just a specific case of, of that decision. Let's talk about, I don't, I don't want to, governance is a really important discussion on this. And we can maybe discuss that uh, later. I'm not, I'm more interested in the actual mechanism. Um, <clears throat> I guess we can start with like the analogy to TrueBit, right? TrueBit was one of the larger, I guess, multi-party computation, interactive multi-party computation um, platforms out there in the ecosystem. Uh, is it is how you're doing multi-party computations similar to how they work? We interviewed them a while back. Yeah, so so um, TrueBit is informally referred to as a multi-party computation, um, but I guess in the academic literature, multi-party computation is a very very specific meaning, uh, and and TrueBit doesn't fall under that. So the way that it's different is that no node actually has access to the real underlying data. Um, if they did, then nothing would be able to stay secret. So instead, what you do is um, you take your data and you, you split it up in into what are called shares. And you do this by you, you draw a random polynomial uh, of a particular complexity. It can be as complex as you like. And you pick a point on that polynomial that everyone agrees uh, by standard is where you're going to put the secret. So you'll say, this is my random polynomial. And at x equals zero, bam, that's my data. That's my secret. Where 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 it intercepts the uh, the y-axis. Uh, that's the thing I actually want to keep secret. And so what I'll do is I'll give every machine in the computation a point on the line, somewhere else on the line. At x equals 1, x equals 2, so on and so on. And I'll give it as many points as there are nodes. And depending on the complexity of this, this polynomial will depend on how many of these nodes would have to collude and get together in order to reconstruct the polynomial and, and see what my secret was. You've exactly um, described Shamir secret sharing. It is. So secure multi-party computation uses um, an arbitrary secret sharing algorithm, uh, most commonly Shamir's secret sharing. And what's interesting about things like polynomials, though, is that if you just add them together, add two different polynomials together, you have actually added the points at x equals zero, even though you don't have the points at x equals zero. And so suddenly you can do addition. And in a similar way, uh, although somewhat more complicated, you can do multiplication and you can multiply these two polynomials together. And without revealing what's at x equals zero, you can still multiply it just by working with the shares. And so once you have addition and multiplication, you can do anything. You can do general. That's what you're referring to on the platform is like zero knowledge transactions. Yeah. So, so you can use this 
addition and multiplication technique to 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 build uh, private keys, and you can um, sign transactions in 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 secret using this mechanism, where your private key is just that point at x equals zero. So how do you choose how do you choose nodes in the network to do a well, specific be, um, to do a sort of specific transaction or computation on a specific transaction? So that's where the um, the rent token comes in. Um, obviously, because the number of nodes is is inherent part of of the security. You can't allow a potentially malicious actor to just register as many nodes as, as they see fit, um, because that gets out of hand really quickly, and then you know you can't provide any kind of security guarantees there. So by requiring this hundred thousand ren bond, you financially limit how much an actor could uh, register in terms of their dark nodes, and from this dark node set, uh, you sample a large group, uh, several hundred of them. Um, and we're, we're trying to push that up to, to 1,000. Uh, and you do that deterministically based on information that you see uh, on the Ethereum blockchain. Uh, and very soon, we're going to migrate that away so that you're not uh, relying on the Ethereum blockchain. Instead, you're relying on random numbers produced by the network itself. Okay, so and right now, your randomness up. is relying upon the, 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 the blocks, block propagation of the, of the Ethereum blockchain. Eventually, that'll that's move right, over to yeah. something that's much more random. Yeah, and I recently yes. just found out that that... that that's not as random as we thought. Like well, it depends, really, yeah. it depends <laughs> like, on the, the the desire of the node uh, of the of the miners of the Ethereum blockchain and their ability to front run transactions based on the randomness that they'd like to see. Right, right. right. That's correct. And the randomness is used to sample um, dark nodes uh, and decide which of them are going to uh, be part of the computation. Um, until you have more than one thousand nodes, until you have significantly more than one thousand nodes. Um, that randomness actually doesn't matter at all. Um, there, there's no reason for it. Um, and until until you get above 1,000, then suddenly, okay, there is a reason to uh, to notice that randomness. But uh, it's not as trivial as saying, okay, if you manipulate the block hash to have this kind of property, then you're instantly going to be able to get yourself into the, yeah. the shard. Yeah, uh, it's because it shuffles the entire network. You have to figure out how to get your specific ones all next to each other in this random shuffling algorithm and still have a valid block hash. It's almost similar to, I wouldn't say it's similar, but it's the same idea in which Definity uses its, its beacon chain to pick validators on various things. Well, they don't have a beacon chain. They actually just use uh, BLS signature groups well, to actually they're, determine they're, the they're, they're, beacon, right? You know, the BLS signatures has the, basically like a valid, they call it like a validation tree, which is like a, a hierarchical order of BLS signatures in a lot of ways. But in the end, they use this as a random, as a random beacon. Yeah, which then yeah, yeah. just a lot of things for whatever blockchain is built on top. And that's a similar thing. Which here. makes me wonder why, why Shamir, because Shamir is a recalculation every single time. It's like you pick a polynomial, it's a standard polynomial for the whole thing, and then you determine a random coefficient, which is going to be your Y point, which intersects on the axis. axis. And then when you do, do your distribution, like everybody, like, like first of all, like, like you're supposed to determine what the polynomial is. Well, no, I guess not. <sighs> so you can build the polynomial within the secret um, computation itself. Right. So one way to do this is um, everyone picks a random number and they shimmer a secret share for everyone else and then they all give their shares to everyone and then they all add up all their shares and now they have a, a share of a global random number that no one actually knows. Everyone knows their own local random number they produced and they know the global random number is the sum of all their local random numbers but all they ever saw of that was shares. How does that scale? That seems like it would scale poorly. That scales really poorly. <laughs> the reason it scales okay. poorly is because <laughs> What if a single node decides to go offline and says, actually, you know what? Right, yes. I'm only going to give half of you my shares and I'm not going to give anyone else my shares. And that's going to completely screw you up. You have to go through this heavy 
consensus protocol to try and understand who has what shares. Um, and if you say, okay, everyone's going to participate and they don't, then you have this issue where you now have to start all over again and go back to ground zero and, and regenerate your random number. Uh, and this is the approach that's taken by the other projects that we see using secure multi-party computation. And it's the approach that's generally taken in the literature. In the literature, secure multi-party computation has been studied heavily, but not really in the context of an actual Byzantine blockchain type environment, only in sort of academic environment, like let's say the military way. You more or less do have trusted nodes, but you can't necessarily trust them um, because that's kind of like the domain that you're living in. But in the blockchain case, liveliness is, is absolutely critical and allowing nodes to just go offline and have the whole thing collapse just really isn't viable. And so there's a, a consensus mechanism that you piggyback off, and this is what we call hyperdrive, which is more or less just the tenement consensus algorithm that's being slightly modified for our particular use case. And you piggyback on that leadership and that, that ability to re-elect leaders in the case that they're faulty and on the multiple rounds of voting to generate your random numbers, but still using the same underlying technique where everyone sort of picks their random number, shares it, sends it to the leader. And the leader, I guess, as a block, proposes which ones that it wants used. But Tendermint is kind of a deep, it's DPoS, right? So you have to like say, hey, these are who we trust like ahead of time there's a setup process and then there's a staking process well, there's bonded they're all, all, all yeah, bonding, bonded whatever already. yeah but like the question yeah, so is... is already bonded so so every dark node that acts as a party in the multi-party compute also acts as a party in the consensus for um the tenement algorithm so why would they do this why would they set up why would they want to diversify the number of of uh, uh i guess you call them compute validators really they're, they're kind of like i don't know like i don't know what to call what are they called like there's nodes in in the red network dark nodes they're dark nodes yeah yeah so they're oh, nodes that's... but they don't actually see anything oh okay they're, they're in the dark oh i get it okay uh so these dark nodes they would they would you know they would have a great responsibility to be you know active and that you know there's like if even if you like you can gain a lot of information by controlling a significant number of dark nodes right uh, um, no, so unless you okay. control the exact threshold, you don't get any information. So you don't actually get closer to owning more information the closer right, you get right. to the threshold. Well, that I get. That, I mean, yeah. But like, like the more nodes you own, the more likelihood for every transaction that you will get a uh, to be able to do something with that transaction. Does that make sense? Yes, uh, that makes perfect sense. And, and so you have to really make sure that um, your algorithm can support a large number of nodes. And so we're pushing that threshold as best we can to about, about 1,000. Uh, and if you have if you have about that many nodes and, and you have a total pool of 10,000, uh, and I mean, Tendermint is only fundamentally secure against uh, a one-third adversarial threshold, uh, and so is our underlying multi-party computation. So they kind of give out at the same time. Um, if you if you trust the Tendermint model, then you're inherently trusting the same model that, uh, that REN uses. Uh, and realistically, this is the same model that even chains like like Bitcoin support, Craig Wright, I know you don't uh, agree with this particular line of argument, <laughs> but uh, the threshold is only one third <laughs> because of things like the selfish mining attack that 33% of the power in um, Bitcoin, if you attack it, uh, it's game over. Uh, you can you can do a double spend. So what we have here is um, an attempt to make or, or what has been made a decentralized multi-party computation machine in which the nodes don't really understand what they're computing. 
Yep. I mean, they know what they're doing. They just don't know what they're doing it with. So they know they're signing a transaction. They just don't really know anything about that transaction or the key behind the transaction. Okay. And then I, I, can you walk me through the process of I want to send Bitcoin to Ethereum. Start me off with crafting the appropriate Bitcoin transaction and interacting with the RinVM API to get it to some address in Ethereum. Sure. So, and also like is... describe RinVM a little more to me because I'm, I'm not quite. Clear I'm pretty on... sure he just did. Well, like, is it an actual VM like EVM is? It has its own language, or like, is this something that? Yeah. So does that make sense? So like... it does have its, its it does have its own instruction set um, that okay, you can use okay. to program it. It's not generally programmable yet. Uh, we are going to make that a possibility. Um, we're still kind of assessing the viability of state and all this kind of other questions when you, you uh, enable sort of general compute models. Um, and we're also assessing whether we want it to be, you know, true and complete. But, but RenVM is ultimately this group of dark nodes that do these computations and they have this instruction set which defines that computation for them. And right now they just have a bunch of intrinsic programs that are inherent to the VM that it understands. Uh, but it will be um, something more programmable later on. Oh, okay, cool. Um, and we call that collection of the dark nodes RenVM. And we call Ren, the RenVM plus the set of standards built on top of it about how to make this interoperability most usable and most seamless. Um, yeah, so to the point about how you actually do this is when you send Bitcoin to the Ethereum blockchain, the first thing you have is an address that on the Ethereum blockchain that you want to be sending this transaction to. Um, and you may also have some extra what we call payload data that you want to send along with that, which gives some context for why you're sending it. So are you sending this because you want to interact with the DEX? Are you sending this because you want to interact with some kind of locking up contract? Uh, it's an arbitrary data payload. Is this, like, and, are you referring to the Ethereum data payload or is this something specific yeah, the to the Ethereum rent? data payload. Okay, no, no, okay. This is the Ethereum data payload. So for example, if, if I'm sending it to a DEX, then not just the Bitcoin that I want to send, I want to send, you know, like a, a maximum price that I'm willing to, to pay for the thing that I'm trying to buy. I want to send the, the Zcash address, let's say, uh, that I want the funds to be sent back to. Um, there are these kinds of properties and, and they're always going to be application specific. So this mm -hmm. payload is, is arbitrary. Uh, you take the address that you want to send it to, you take the hash of the payload, uh, you take the, the public key of the RenVM, and from this you deterministically generate a Bitcoin address, a special Bitcoin address that only RenVM can withdraw Bitcoin from. And you don't need to interact with anyone to do this. You just need to know that data that you have, um, and you can generate this, this unique address. And you send your Bitcoin to that unique address, uh, and then you notify RenVM about it. You say, hey, RenVM, here's the place on Ethereum I want it to be sent to. Here's the data payload. Uh, you obviously know your own public key. And RenVM takes that in each node individually without needing to, I guess, uh, communicate with each other. It's not interactive yet. They can also uh, deterministically generate that Bitcoin address and verify that there is actually Bitcoin there. If there is, they then go ahead and they engage in the multi-party computation that we just talked about to generate a signature that can be used to mint Bitcoin on Ethereum. And they give that signature back to the user and they say, here's the signature that you need. And it's a signature that is bound to that data. So when you put it onto the Ethereum smart contract that governs the Ethereum version of Bitcoin, um, you have this, this payload attached to it or the, a hash of the payload. 
you have the two address embedded in it, uh, and obviously you have the amount. And so uh, Bitcoin sees that, verifies the signature, verifies that it does in fact come from the Renvm public key, which is which is known by everyone. And if it is, and that all checks out, then it mints this Bitcoin, sends it to the two address, uh, and you're off and you're away. Because that's um, so you, you you're going to need smart contracts on Ethereum in order for this to operate correctly. That's correct, and we've um, we've deployed those smart contracts uh, onto Ethereum uh, to its testnet at this stage. Okay, I'll, I'll have more questions about those later, but I'm going to keep mm. going. Uh, but everyone uses the same the same set of contracts for um, yeah. minting minting these. This tokens. is basically like a part of the of the Rin infrastructure is your kind of fingers and all the blockchains that you enable within the Rin VM. Exactly. As your as your as your documentation says, the interoperability layer. Yes, that's correct. Um, and then this sort of then the smart contract that you actually want to interact with that two address would typically be the address of of a smart contract or an adapter around an existing smart contract. Uh, and so you could send this to an adapter for Uniswap uh, that you could build without modifying the Uniswap system at all. Um, and that contract would receive the. Um, receive the, the Bitcoin, would receive the payload, it would analyze the payload to see what data is in it, it could verify the signature itself, uh, and then it would do something like forward that Bitcoin immediately onto uh, to the DEX, and the DEX would give it back immediately, um, let's say, an ERC-20 representation of, of Zcash for Bitcoin uh, in this example. And then immediately that contract would burn that in the associated uh, Zcash smart contract. So now you've got this single Ethereum transaction that kind of mints Bitcoin, sends it to an adapter. The adapter sends it to Uniswap. Uniswap sends back the traded token and the adapter immediately burns that. Um, this sort of one immediate transaction. Uh, there's no no interactivity here. It's just kind of like submit the transaction and you're done. And RenVM will observe that um, that burn so it can sort of keep a log of everything that's happening on Ethereum and, and get notified when, when it sees a burn or it can rely on some other third party explicitly poking it being like, I think you missed this burn event, please check it out. It'll see it. And with that burn event, you want to associate a, um, a two address on the origin chain. So it's not like a normal burn where you just kind of like it disappears out of existence. You associate a, an address on let's say Zcash in this example. Uh, so the adapter burns it with the two address um, RenVM sees that, and if it uh, agrees that you know this is all all fine and good, uh, you know the number of uh, confirmations that it needs is, has passed, it will engage in a multi-party computation to release the burned amount of uh, Zcash to uh, the associated address. That's quite a bit. I'm trying to think of yeah. kind of games you can play with this in terms of like maybe like uh <clears throat> like for instance do you look at mixers a lot of the times what people will do is they, they they do a bunch of mixing and then look at the inputs and outputs to try and match um who's sending what to whom because like i say for instance if you're if you, if you send uh i think old mixers used to work this way they've gotten around it but like say a mixer takes in uh 10 inputs and outputs 10 uh, and mixes them all up and then outputs 10 and outputs what you do is you basically just flood the, the mixer and see like when you get when you get nine out of ten you can you can make forensic analysis and basically figure out who the other person was and and and, and kind of demystify that type of obfuscation i'm trying to think if there's any type of things like this you could do within within 
within RINs that to try and gain extra knowledge about what's going on in terms of what's the surrounding infrastructure of RIN. Say for instance, you've you've done your job correct and the, the RIN VM is a is a black box. And there's no, there's no taint associated with inputs and outputs. But you can still do forensic analysis around the things, everything outside of it that's interacting with it to try and guess right, yeah. what so value is going on. We haven't actually talked about the privacy aspect of this yet. So so this is completely public. Like I mean, you can completely associate, you, you can see a Bitcoin um, transaction go to RenVM and you can see the associated uh, transaction mint on on the blockchain and all the associated metadata. Because one of the pieces of metadata is actually the transaction hash. So it's actually very intentionally auditable um, in the public form. In the private form, uh, I guess there are, there are two uh, ways to break it down. And the first one is if the origin chain is inherently private. So for example, Monero or Zcash, uh, if the coin is inherently private, then RenVM can use the same secure multi-party computation to ensure that it's minting the appropriate amount of, um, let's say Zcash onto Ethereum without actually knowing what that amount is. It can still verify that, I don't know how much we've minted, but we've definitely minted the right amount. And it can mint it straight into something like an Aztec contract where it can stay secret. And then the Aztec contract can mint uh, or can burn that away and, and you can release Zcash in very much the same way that we discussed. But um, by relying on secure multi-party computation, you can verify all the amounts um, and all the addresses, even if you don't know what they actually are. So you can maintain that that security. Um, the only danger is that when you move it to something like Ethereum, Ethereum doesn't have private addresses. So you have to use more like a, um, a mixer type approach to send these funds around once they're on Ethereum. But that crossing of the bridge remains completely hidden. So I, I, I'm still having a... Corey kind of jumped ahead from where I, I currently am. So let, me, <laughs> let me dial it back. So he's getting right into the security stuff. Um, privacy, et cetera, et cetera. I'm, I'm kind of looking at this like, okay, I, I kind of can garner what you're getting at from some of this, but I, I'm trying to, first off, look for the, the main primary key innovation here. But um, starting with, uh, you know, things I don't get, which is, all right, let's just put imaginary wall and like Ren is on the other side of both walls, okay? I'm going to start on, on, let's just say I start with Bitcoin, okay? Monero, I, I don't care. Um, I want to... From a user experience perspective, and you might have mentioned this, but it, it probably went right through my ears. From a user experience perspective, I want to send money to, um, I'll just, Ethereum, fuck it. Um, so I, I want to send it to Ethereum. So I go, okay, what do I do as a Bitcoin owner to send money to Ethereum? And how do I know as an Ethereum owner of the Bitcoin token I can retrieve with 100% certainty or as close to as possible um, the funds that I have on my token side back to Bitcoin when I need it. Like that's where I'm kind of like, do I send money to a particular address in Bitcoin? How do I know what that address is? What like the owner of that address from what I gather is, is the address itself sounded like, and maybe I misunderstood this was produced by the Shamir secret share portion. No, no. So the, the address, that you deposit your Bitcoin into is um, it's actually a Bitcoin script and it's just oh. built from deterministically known inputs, which is just like, who are you sending the money to on Ethereum? Uh, okay. And is there any payload associated with that, that you, that you will be sending when you do that? Okay. That's what he was okay. saying, and, like a private key that no one else can own, but the RIN VM. So what you're, what, what you're doing is 
by submitting a transaction or a request for a transaction to their VM, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but I, this is what I've understood so far. Uh, you are, the, the RenVM is taking the, those inputs, which is your request for a transaction somewhere, creating a private key, and then generating the associated addresses with that, with that private key and saying, send money here. We can move it from this, uh, this location. So you, you could do it that way, okay. um, but we don't do it that way. Yeah, it sounds like they're using more like kind the, of the script. And, and yeah, it's costly. There has to be this communication with RenVM as well to, to yeah. generate this key. And we want to minimize that. So there's actually one master key. Um, and you can generate Bitcoin scripts that can only be redeemed by that master key. Okay. So everything everything flows through a single a single entity. Yeah, everything flows through that single master key. So the public key associated with that would just become a matter of fact and you could just hard code it into your application. Uh, and so there's still this intention that, you know, a user is going to be interacting with some kind of, you know, web app or, or visual interface uh, like you usually are in order to do the thing that they're doing. That interface could generate the Bitcoin address that said, well, based on the fact that I know you want to send this to Uniswap, well, I know what the Uniswap adapter address is. That's a known constant. Um, you've told me um, the amount and then the associated payload data, uh, for example, you know, what price you want. So without talking to RenVM at all and without talking to anyone, I can generate this this Bitcoin address and I can just show that on the screen to you as a user. So the user says, I want these details for my, my exchange and they see a Bitcoin address and they can validate that Bitcoin address with third parties, with whoever they like, while it may introduce an explicit support for that. Um, they, they can validate that if, if they don't trust the website. Uh, once they validated it, if they so choose to do so, they just send Bitcoin to it and that's it. That's all they have to do. And then... RenVM will, will see that deposit. Um, either the web app will poke it and say, hey, just check out that address, please. Um, or in the case of a fully, you know, no middleman kind of process, the user can choose to poke RenVM themselves. Um, and then that whole process that we talked about kicks off. So the user really only has to, from the Bitcoin side of things, send their Bitcoin just to an address that's given to them that they can verify independently on any number of websites or wherever they so choose. Huh. So what my question then is like, uh, you said there's a, uh, and you probably also already said this just immediately, but I, my brain didn't pick it up again. There's a master address for the the, the script, right? So where where's that master address held? How's it created? Who Does anybody actually own that? Or is that literally, it can't be literally dynamically generated every single time, correct? Like it's just generated already... once at the beginning of all time. Beginning of all time, okay. And if somebody compromises that, can they compromise the entire system? If someone compromises that, then they would compromise the entire system. So you would, because it's just a normal private key, they would get that private key and they'd right. be like, all right, we're done. But assuming it was done in a trustless setup, compromising that is the equivalent of compromising anyone's private key. But was it done yes. in a trustless setup is what I would, didn't understand. So is that so, part of the setup process? I thought that was like part of getting the script up there process, if that makes sense. So what will happen, I mean, this is part of how we're going to have to bootstrap the network. Um, so we'll bootstrap the network by having a um, more semi-trusted model to begin with while we can attain a large, a sufficiently large number of dark nodes from just anywhere. Uh -huh. And once we hit that, that threshold, we will generate the master key uh, and it'll be generated by, you know, hundreds, if not a thousand members of the, of the public of people who've registered their dark nodes. Right. Uh, and unless you owned two thirds of those nodes at that time, and you could you could up that threshold uh, because for this beginning of all time generation, you would happily take needing to repeat the computation over and over again in the case that um, you suffered liveliness problems. Right, so right, right. 90% um, of, of all those nodes would have to be colluding in order for something to, to go wrong. 
Yeah. And and that's that's kind of a it's a trusted setup basically is what you're saying is that when the network is first initialized there is a trusted setup for the entire network going forward. Um, I wouldn't call it trusted setup because there aren't trust. Any well, specific. It's, it's, it's 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 as trusted as the network itself. Yeah, it's as okay. Yeah, there you go. I mean, it's yeah. I guess I yeah. Okay, it's a setup. It's not necessarily a trusted setup, but it is it is a setup process. It's a bootstrap process. I got gotcha. you. Okay, cool. And you know that's not that's not uncommon in these systems. Like when you want to throw up a uh, you know a, a, um, a proof of authority network, for instance, like those you have to have a trusted setup, right? You have to have somebody some agreed upon information which you use in order to actually establish a trust, uh, 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 you know, a, a trustless connection between all all the nodes in the network. Uh, and even then, that's not like completely trustless. But you get what I'm saying. Like um, that's not uncommon um, to bootstrap your network that way. Uh, that makes perfect sense. Um, and there's no, is there a way for you to kind of guarantee the setup was done well, or is there like, like, um, or maybe even like as the network grows, like kind of like automatically as part of the protocol, um, throw out the old master key and make a new one every once in a while or something like that. Yeah, is this... yeah. You can, you can absolutely throw out the master key and, and create a new one every now and then we consider doing that once every time. So the whole system proceeds in epochs where you randomly shuffle your dark nodes and which ones are involved. And at that time, you can sort of like reshare the key back out. It's the same key though. Uh, we have considered yeah. at that moment generating a completely new key and forwarding all the funds. Um, it's not a huge um, issue. And, and I guess we've strayed away from it for now. But um, the only issue with that is that every epoch, you're going to lose uh, the gas fees that it takes to send that that Bitcoin from the first master key to the second master key. And suddenly you're not a one-to-one -one peg anymore because you've lost a little bit of that, um, that maintenance cost. And you don't want to introduce a maintenance cost on Ethereum where it's like, okay, if you hold the Bitcoin on Ethereum for a year, suddenly it becomes 0.99999 Bitcoin. Uh, that's insanely hard to do and very weird and subverts a lot of contract expectations. Um, for example, if you imagine a CDP, um, where the collateral was slowly decaying over time, um, that would be not very effective. Um, well, that actually brings up another, another question I have right now then. Um, it's not exactly one-to-one -one because you're paying the gas fees or uh, you know, the amount of gas um, you know, transaction fees associated with sending um, you know, Bitcoin from address A to Bitcoin from address B once the old master node wants a new one. Um, by the way, if there's any mess up in that process, all that Bitcoin's lost, which would suck. Um, but... Uh, uh, let's let's say Bitcoin gets attacked in that in that point, and some chain that's that's not relevant to you suddenly gets attacked or has some sort of way of, of manipulating for whatever reason. And that that's also a possible attack vector, which could be held at fault for the REN network for having that standardized epoch-based transaction where you would trade things. So there's a lot of considerations around um, that particular scenario. But I do see like a security model where you know you, you're changing these addresses. You know, not every day, but like you know every so often makes a lot of sense to me because that would make sure that you know that the master node can't somehow be uh, master address can't be mined out, but because you're doing that transfer, you would be pulling out the transaction fees of the pool of money that already exists in the, in the, in the, um, in the actual, uh, what's it called? The actual uh, master address, which means you're, you're leaking just like sub pennies on a Tiny. dollar. Yeah. yeah like, but it's still, it's, yeah, it's still it's, there. So technically, you, you lose it. Yeah. So but one option we did consider was an optional master key movement. So you say, mm -hmm. at most, once per month, the darkness will be willing to move mm -hmm. 
from one master key to a wallet at most, and they won't mm-hmm. initiate this by themselves. But anyone can prompt them to do it by sending them that extra money. So they'll say, hey, RenVM, I would really love it. Personally, it's been a month. I'm a little bit worried. We went from 300 dark nodes to 3,000 dark nodes in the last month. So getting a new master key seems to make sense to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also a reasonable way to verify that that key hasn't been compromised because a malicious adversary wouldn't willingly let those funds move. Right. And you know what could uh, also be another alternative there is, is you know, there's cost to running these kind of nodes. Like there's got to be an incentive model built around running these nodes, right? So why not donate to the network? And like by having those donations go into the actual address in the donation bucket, it pays the network too. So whenever the master node actually switches over, it's like you're saying, oh, it switched over. Guess what? We're going to withdraw our funds. And this is the amount of participation we had in the network registered with the system. So because you, you registered, um, you know, this amount of, of actual validation or I guess uh, dark node time um, you, you get a return on your investment through the donations, because it reached the threshold of the donations, you get this much, and the rest all goes to transaction fees to pay out um, moving master addresses on every single chain that we are currently interfacing with. Yeah, so we haven't thought about like a continuing donation thing. We thought thought more of like just a at this moment in time, I uh-huh. reckon the master wallet should be moved. So I'm going to send you, I'm going to send RenVM ten thousand sats and say, hey, can you please regenerate the master key? It's been a month, and then right. the darkness be like ten thousand sats. Great, we're ten thousand sats up from our one to one peg. We're going to transition to the new master key and spend 10,000 sats doing that. And then, hey, we're back to our one-to-one peg. Gotcha. Cool. So um, from here, um, I think it's obvious to, to, to say like the, the, the obvious first use case of this is a DEX in which the funds are controlled by a network of computers doing multi-party computation that own actually the actual keys that control all the funds. Pretty much right? Yeah, basically. Yeah. So now you have now you have a true DEX and that's controlled by like that has to that the funds are controlled by a large network of people. So the security of those funds is relatively safe, along with like the ability to move those funds in an interactive manner, at least for the time being. By move, I mean like you can you can you can you can change the keys, the master keys of of, of what the network is doing. So I mean let me ask a pretty 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 bold question here. What sucks about Ren? Because it What's sounds really about? kind of good at the on the surface, but it's really hard to kind of like get the the details <laughs> yeah, of what. I what mean, it, like, and so, like, what do you need to fix? What is what is like right now? <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, I mean, like, I asked it in a very bold way intentionally because I wanted no, to like no, invoke please. invoke kind of like an emotional and engaging response from you, where it's like, yeah, these are the things we really need to fix. Like, but these are why they're solvable, and that's what I really want to hear. Um, like, what what like because decentralized exchanges are not a new topic of discussion. People really want them, but there's a lot of barriers to entries around them. And it's very hard to find those barriers to entries in a one hour conversation, um, you know, over the internet with, uh, with somebody who, um, who's, who is deep in the space, but like, it's hard to find what those actual problems are with every system. You know what I mean? So I want to know what are your specific areas of research and why do you think they're solvable um, with Ren? So for starters, I think anyone that, that, that shies away from that line of questioning in, in this space, especially in, in any security oriented um, environment, just immediately doesn't know what they're doing. Uh, I think if you don't know how to answer what are the limitations of your system, what are the risks, wh- what do you need to get better at? Um, you haven't really thought about your system well enough or you have, but you're just not willing to talk about it, which means you're not being honest either with yourself or, or with your investors or, or whoever. Uh, so yeah, of course there are problems with, um, with RAN. Um, a lot of them, I, mean, I can talk about some of the ones in the past because it kind of, I guess, paints a bit more of a, a picture and, and I can give context to the current problems. 
when we first started out, um, we had no idea how to achieve, um, or we didn't really consider the interoperability side of things. We, we were happy with, with atomic swaps for the time being, and we were just trying to develop that, that privacy aspect, which is why we were looking into secure multi-party computation is how can you match orders in a DEX privately. And, um, in developing that, it became very apparent that there were two major issues. One was the user experience at the actual end product. And the other was atomic swaps just suck. Uh, they're, they're so slow and they have this, this um, interactive fault problem or the free option problem where you can just decide not to execute after, after the fact. And so we spent a lot of time digging into this. And, and, and it's actually kind of funny that, that we spent quite an amount of time looking at other possible ways to force atomic swaps to happen. Um, and, and the reason for that was we, we were aware that we could use secure multi-party computation to hold keys in theory, but we weren't happy with uh, the implementations available. We weren't happy with where the research was at in terms of telling people, okay, well, you could have 100% corruption threshold, but a single node going offline stops, it, stops everything and it's all over. I mean, that, that's not feasible even in an honest network, let alone a dishonest network. Uh, and so we began like researching very heavily into what can we do with secure multi-party computation to change this? Uh, how can we make it, make it better? And, and we had this eureka moment where we sort of stumbled across a new technique that we thought, well, hey, this solves exactly what we need to solve. Um, it gives us our liveliness thresholds back. Um, it keeps the Byzantine thresholds within the same realm as as those provided by other chains and so we we began to uh transition to solving this interoperability problem uh, in that way but this this user problem still existed so so we we put this constraint on ourselves to say all right well it has to be it has to be usable it has to be friendly so i guess these are the two like main restrictions that, that i see or the main problems um that that we encountered and, and most of the problems that we continue to encounter fall into one of these two buckets. So in that first bucket with uh, user experience, um, we're specifically trying to design the whole system around this idea of uh, like universal login, which has been talked about on the Ethereum, uh, in the Ethereum community quite a bit. This idea of allowing a trustless, albeit, um, I guess you could call it permissioned, third party to submit transactions on your behalf and, and pay the gas fees and, and in exchange extract some value from that. And so this is what part makes up part of the REN standard or what we're trying to make part of the REN standard, which is as a user with, with my Bitcoin, sending my Bitcoin to this DEX, I probably don't have Ethereum. I mean, that's why I'm a Bitcoin maximalist, let's say, that's trying to diversify into Zcash. I don't want to go get ETH. That, that kind of defeats the whole point. Or, or maybe even worse, maybe I'm trying to use my Bitcoin to buy ETH. Uh, <laughs> if I need ETH gas to do that, that kind of defeats the whole point. Um, so building, trying to build this in such a way that some third party can, can submit the transaction to Ethereum on your behalf, pay the gas fees on your behalf. And in exchange for that, take a little bit of the Bitcoin that was minted and, and sent out throughout that entire process that you can say, it's a service that's being provided and, and they're taking, um, you know, they're, they're getting rewarded for that service that they're providing. Um, trying to get that perfect uh, and trying to make sure that it, that it's compatible with as many use cases that exist right now and, and use cases that don't exist right now that, that we may not even think of yet. 
uh, is a really challenging process. Uh, and it's one that requires a lot of collaboration with other projects uh, and one that requires a lot of brain power from as many different people uh, as possible. And so that's something that we're undergoing at the moment is we have these fundamentals uh, and we've demonstrated some cool technology. We've um, you know, demonstrated these processes, but uh, before it can be something that's mainnet ready, if you want to call it that, requires a lot of collaboration with these other projects to say, right, if you're going to use this, what's, what's the process you want for your users? Um, and hopefully if you build a system that's compatible with every single use case that's available today, then chances are you've got something that's going to be compatible moving forward. Um, the second challenge is this one, I guess it's more concretely in the realm of, of security and privacy. So first, obviously, you know, we have to get all these contracts audited. Um, that's, you know, that's a baseline. That's obvious. The second challenge is how do you audit a system that's never been built before? Um, there isn't a network like the one that we have. There's a lot of people that are experts in the space of secure multi-party computation. Uh, and they can peer review our, our research and, and verify that it works. But what about the actual thing that you've built? If there's a bug in it, then if every single node is running this one piece of software, suddenly every single node is vulnerable and, and this might be a surface of attack. Um, so ensuring that the, the implementation has no issues is, is fundamentally impossible. I don't believe that anyone who claims that their implementation is, is bug-free is telling the truth. Um, so the only other approach is to implement it in as many different ways as possible with as many different teams as possible. So going to other development houses and saying, here's the spec, here's an example implementation in, in Go, let's say. Build it again. Build it in C++. Build it in Rust. Um, God, don't build it in Python. Um, oh. yeah, it's not performant. That's true. I love Python. It's not performant. But... Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I forgot you guys were engineers. <laughs> um, and um, hopefully, because it's built by different people or different subsets of people, obviously there's overlapping you know, collaboration um, and different languages, that the bugs that come up aren't going to be the same. Um, that even if there is a bug vulnerability in the Go implementation, if that's one of five implementations, then maybe 20% of nodes are affected and you can patch that uh, as quickly as you can. And in the meantime, not the Byzantine threshold of nodes are, are compromised. So these are the, like, I guess the kind of challenges that we're facing. And, and I guess the final one that I haven't touched on much publicly at all is, is governance. How do you govern RenVM and how do you get it to accept updates? How do you get it to accept new chains? Um, I don't think there is an answer yet. I, I don't think anyone in this decentralized space has come up with a solid proven mechanism for governance. And, and I think that's because proving governance is something that takes time. I mean, it's clearly you just do it through Twitter, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, God, hopefully not. Um, and so for the beginning of the project, Ren is going to maintain governance over, um, over the platform. Um, which is not ideal, but I mean, that isn't a more sensible option. Uh, and then we'll try and move that to more, a more community-based effort with the projects involved in the space. Um, and then once someone proves a, a governance model, uh, we will adopt it. I, I think prove, we don't, mean, we're not it up to a certain you know, value, value control, right? It's gotta be proven to be efficient with a certain threshold of value. Like, it's like, it's like smart contract security, right? The smart contract is as secure as how much money it's held. 
yeah, you don't really exactly. know. And so like it's basically like it's it's worked for this long with this much value. And so based on that, we're willing to take the chance to say it's 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 safe and a similar type of value in different circumstances. And I, I don't know, like there's a there's there's like you said, there's a tremendous amount of questions to be answered, but it's definitely interesting in what you've built. Where do people go to learn more and get involved in the conversation if they're interested? Um, first of all, jump on our website, um, check out the content there. Um, we're about to release um, a whole set of docs um, that will be public that people can sort of go through and, and comment on and, and get to know the platform in, in a bit more of the nitty gritty. Um, but right now, the best place is, is either jump on, on Twitter or, or Reddit or, or Telegram. I guess those are the big three that Ren, um, the community exists around, specifically our Telegram. Come in and ask questions. Um, we, we run a very tight ship in our community um, and all kinds of questions are, are acceptable. If you want to come in and, and criticize the hell out of our system, uh, great, please, please do. Um, the more people that, that ask these questions, these hard questions will help us. If we can't answer those questions, then we know we have a problem. Um, but we often do answer those questions and, and other people in our community are well-versed in, in these topics and, and they can also help out and, and give you feedback. Um, and it's also where you can come to get help setting up a dark mode. Uh, if if you want to. All right, that was a uh, that's great. I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of seeing where this goes. I, I want, I want to know more, and I'm still skeptical on all the things, but at least I have a solid base to say like, oh, this isn't bullshit. This, there's something here, right? And like, I think that's what I wanted to get out of this interview. Um, I like the foundations of how this is built, although it's like there's a lot to be done to to do all the things you want to do, but it's definitely worth trying in this particular fashion. Yeah, um, I mean, that's high praise. <laughs> <laughs> that's high praise. Well, it's definitely no, ain't bullshit. Oh, yeah, man, that's high praise these days. Jesus Christ. Oh, God, is this the world we live in? <laughs> Welcome to the blockchain space, folks, where it's definitely I'm, not I'm, bullshit I'm is high praise. <laughs> I'm more critical of, of people who just praise it without question. Uh, yeah. I think it, it's indicative that they're not thinking about it. Wind moon is the question. <laughs> <laughs> That that will get you a fan. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's great. Uh, I, thanks, audience, for listening. If you're interested, go check them out. Um, we'll put their we'll put their website and uh, relevant links inside the description. And if you also like this episode, uh, send us some money on our donate button. That'll also be in the description. And uh, share this with your friends. Click like. Click the click all the buttons and tell everybody. On Twitter, uh, we are hashing it out pod. I am at Core Petty on Twitter. Colin is at Colin Couchet. That's C-O-L-L-I-N-C-U-S-C-E. And Long, hi, uh, what, are you on Twitter? I am, yeah. B-Z-L-W-A-N-G. Okay, great. Well, we'll include that as well in the show notes. So thanks for joining us and see you next time. Yes, great to meet you. Thanks.